Gregory Warner here to tell you about NPR's new international podcast. It's called Rough Translation. Each week, we're going to take you to a different country to hear a story that reflects back on something that we are talking about here in the United States. Maybe get a perspective shift. Travel with us. Rough Translation is on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ani DeFranco is a great songwriter. She runs her own label. She's fiercely political, too. You probably knew all of those things about her. But guess what? She's also jammed with Prince. Like, more than once, she was buddies with Prince. She'll never forget the first time she met him. I showed up in Minneapolis one summer, and I had the wonderful Maceo Parker on tour with me, and we were doing shows out, and we were playing out in a ballpark in Minneapolis, and up drove this white limo, and there was a tizzy backstage, and everybody was like, honey, honey, come now, come now. And I go over in the window, and there he is. In all his purple majesty. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Ani talks with me about her new album, Binary, how it's changed her writing process, and more about jamming with Prince. And as we were parting company, I was like, you know, wow, what the heck? I can't believe I just... with my stupid little guitar. And, And Prince said to me, that was the funk. That was the funk you played. Then Aiden Gillen. He plays Littlefinger on Game of Thrones. He was Tommy Carcetti on The Wire. A lot of ambitious, sometimes cagey characters. What inspired him? So you know the way always when you ask actors why they become actors, they go, oh, well, you know, uh, girls and parties and or boys and parties, and, you know, I just wanted to hang out and have fun. Well, that. <laughs> Finally, want to write a perfect song about how performing will never fill the hole in your heart? If you're Randy Newman, all you need is a piano and 133 words. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ani DeFranco moved out of her mom's house at 15. Just about a year after, she started writing her first songs. As an up-and-coming singer-songwriter, she played house shows, weird clubs. She slept on couches and floors. She also started her own record label, Righteous Babe. She releases her own music through it, as well as work from Andrew Bird, Ardo Lindsay, and Sarah Lee. It's been running for more than 20 years now. Around Ani DeFranco, there is this huge, passionate fan base. She sold millions of records, hit a bunch of top 100 charts, won awards, been acclaimed by critics. Maybe more than any other singer, Ani DeFranco is defined by her independence. On her latest record, she sort of sets that label aside. It's called Binary. It features collaborations with Justin Vernon from Bon Iver, Maceo Parker, Gail Ann Dorsey, a bunch more. It's an album about relationships, about coexistence, about the connections out there between everyone. Here's the first single from the record. It's called Play God.
DeFranco, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks. So how much do you tour these days as a person who once essentially lived on the road? Yeah, I know. It's it's looking like very little compared to life up till now. I just took six months off the road to be a mom and back up my fella. He was starting to spin out, <laughs> holding down the <laughs> fort. Um, so yeah, that kind of thing never happened in my twenties and thirties, but now, you know, I do two or three tours in the spring, two or three in the fall, sometimes a festival or two in the summer. It's a pretty, you know, reasonable pace. Just try to balance between, you know, being there for my kids and paying the bills. How old were you when you started playing music professionally? Hmm. Professionally. Hmm. Like, uh, I mean, I started playing gigs when I was nine. I befriended a fellow who was in his 30s, and he was a folk singer about town in Buffalo, New York, and I just became his sidekick. He was kind of a rough character, and I think a, a you know, a pippy longstocking as a sidekick served him well. And I was thrilled to be out in bars and sort of... Uh, you know, seeing the world through his eyes, you know, the eyes of a singer, songwriter, troubadour. And so, yeah, I mean, single digits, I started learning my craft. I mean, when I was a teenager, I started getting my own gigs in Buffalo. And it kind of went from there. I mean, I remember thinking one night when I was a teenager, I had just had a fight with my boyfriend and I was crying and I was distraught. And I went up on stage, which maybe wasn't even a stage at the Essex Street Pub and I played a set of music and I and I put my emotional drama down and I did my job. I was probably 16 and I thought that night I'm a professional. You know, I I found a way to do my job no matter what and that's what you do. You just make a show no matter what the goddess gives you on that night. Yeah, there's a saying in theater that you wipe your feet at the door. Right. There you go. That's a professional. I mean, probably a lot of people wouldn't have considered me a professional for many more years to come. But (laughs) What did audiences think about the fact that uh, there was a nine-year-old on stage? Well, you know, this is pre, you know, drunk driving awareness and therefore, you know, the sort of crackdown on underage people in uh, places with alcohol. So, yeah, I was I was a kid hanging out in bars in the 70s. Well, I guess it's 80, yeah, 70s, 80s in Buffalo and um you know, even even as a teenager when I started getting my own gigs in bars, you know, it was kind of just under the radar. You know, the club owners, they knew I wasn't going to drink. I wasn't going to tell anybody my age. I was just kind of passing in the adult world. I I knew the game already. So, you know, it was an era where that was possible. That was right around the time your folks split up, right? Like nine or 10? Yeah. Yep. And uh, 
Yeah, my parents were kind of embroiled in their uh, implosion, and I just sort of ducked out. And I was always a really self-sufficient kid. Um, I had a brother who was more troubled and took more focus from my parents. So the fact that I just got good grades, didn't get in trouble, I was on my own, and it was great. When you say you were passing in the adult world, I mean, to some extent, by the time you were a teenager, you were passing almost entirely in the adult world, right? I mean, not just when you were in a club playing, but through the rest of your life. Right, yeah. I actually, my mom, I ended up living with my mom in an apartment, and then she bailed and went to Connecticut. And I tried on small-town Connecticut life for like three minutes, and I said, nah. And I went back to Buffalo at 15. I I struck out on my own. So, and you know, I was not legally emancipated. So I everything I did from then on was illegal. You know, my jobs, my apartments. I had to charm the various adults of the world into believing in me and taking a risk and giving me an apartment and a job and. Were you scared to do that or excited to do that? I was excited. I came from an unhappy house, you know, my family. So the freedom of, of, you know, of being self-directed, of being on my own, and I I felt like I was choosing happiness, you know. I, I just wanted to go and be happy and not be involved in all that unnecessary sadness and strife. So I was thrilled to be on my own. You know, I thought of myself as a self-sufficient kid when I was a kid and, you know, grew up with uh, divorced parents in the city. And Mm. I don't think it was till I was an adult that I really realized the extent to which what I saw as self-sufficiency was in part a kind of distrust of others and unwillingness to let them help me. Mm. <laughs> and I wonder if you notice that in your life, especially in your young life, that when, you, when you're that young and you kind of make your own way so much, rely on yourself so much, that it, it, it can sometimes be hard to rely on others. I, 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 I get what you're spraying totally. In fact, it's funny. Recently, I just, you know, I just put out this record called Binary. And I'm doing these interviews and I'm talking to people about my deep thoughts about (laughs) the binary universe that we live in and how everything is a relationship. Nothing. There's no such thing as a singularity or an individual. We only exist in relationship to each other. I mean, it's it's quantum physics and it's uh, the emotional reality. It's the physical design, as far as I know it, of our universe. And I was talking to a, a fellow from Italy the other day because I'm about to go to Europe. And he said, but your 800 number is 1-800 on her own. <laughs> I was like, yeah, right. You know, I spent a lot of years... Believing I was on my own, and um, I kind of am famous for it, in a way, uh, even above and beyond my art often, which has kind of been a bummer. 
And looking back, which I have been lately, I'm writing a memoir in addition to just getting old. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things I realize more and more is that I was never on my own. You know, even as an emancipated kid, I had Michael by my side. I had so many people at every phase of my life that helped me. I This new record that I made, I have all these amazing collaborators from the musicians who played on it to my husband who recorded it to Chad Blake who mixed it and they all contributed so much and I believe uh, help translate these new songs, this new group of songs so much more than on many, many of my records that I did on my own, you know. And now when I look over my life, I I realize I much prefer community relationship unity not 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 i i hope i'm never solitary again how did that on my own spirit when you were a young woman of affect your life like when you were a teenager and in your early 20s well like you say it was my life that that created that spirit i mean i kind of had to be it was out of necessity that i was self-sufficient as a kid and then you you move into your young adult life and you do what you know, you know, before you deconstruct it and reconstruct yourself. Um, so I think, you know, my instinct was just, uh, you know, when I started playing music as a job, I, I, my instinct was, I don't need a record company. I just make a record and I'll just sell it to the people who want it. And... Um, you know, I don't need this and that and the other. I I can, you know, I can produce my own record. There it is. Bada bing, you know. And just uh, I was carrying my I got this um, spirit into my work. And I think it got me, you know, it got me a ways. But then, you know, looking back, I wish now that I had let other people in sooner, that I had trusted and, uh, you know, branched out from that sort of fearful, emancipated child. Because uh, I think that would have helped my art. It would have helped me to grow in ways that I didn't on my own. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ani DeFranco. Her new album, Binary, is out now. My... Uh my friend John Darnell, who's in a band called The Mountain Goats, or he sort of is a band called The Mountain Goats, he's been a complaining lately about doing press for his new album and people asking him about everything other than his art. Mm. And so uh, he happened to have commented that I, I had posted that I was going to be interviewing you today. <laughs> and he, he commented that he thought a song that you wrote called Hypnotized uh, was a genuine masterpiece. And so I thought we would take a listen to it and maybe talk about it a little bit. So that's how you found me Rain falling around me Looking down at a world With a long way to go And the traffic was hissing by and I was homesick and I was high And I was surprised language in which I could say only hello and thank you very much but you spoke so I could 
understand And I drew a treasure map on your hand And you were no picnic And you were no prize But you had just enough pathos to keep me hypnotized Hypnotized When you write in the first person, are you usually writing about yourself? Yes and no. I mean, what is myself? <laughs> <laughs> wow, we're going to go full NPR, honey. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, I guess technically yeah, I often am writing about myself, but I might have conflated myself with someone else. Or I might just be really writing from another point of view, but I find the first person... Uh, I like the immediacy of it. I'm writing I'm writing from what I know, you know, and it's some of it I lived and some of it people very near and dear to me lived. Do you like to write beautiful songs? Oh yeah. I mean, that's the most uplifting feeling. You know, especially you know, a lot of my art and I think art in general comes from struggle, you know comes from pain and when you take your pain and you turn it into something beautiful and useful it's like that's other than my kids that's my deepest joy I've I've ever known I read a really interesting interview that you did in now now more than 20 years ago I think I mean, mid 1990s and one of the things that you were talking about was how much of yourself you lay out on stage um, and the way that you relate to audiences on stage. And essentially you said that the thing that kind of powered you through a performance was looking into the eyes of Mm. the people for Mm -hmm. whom you were performing. And I think that is a fair description of, you know, what you were doing on your records too like you were really looking into the eyes of your audience in a way that few few musical artists uh are are interested in or willing to whatever the case may be do mm-hmm. and i wonder if that became more difficult as you kind of had the twin situations of getting more famous and becoming more of an adult getting older Mm -hmm. yeah i do i do feel like that did become more difficult i mean literally the obsessive eye contact (laughs) and figuratively the obsessive engagement with others and exposure it all tends to compound and become exhausting i think also there was an element to it when I was young that was kind of aggressive, you know? I was aggressive about, no, look at me, <laughs> you. And I, would, I wouldn't stop until I had everyone in the room engaged fully. And, you know, I would just sort of approach my audiences with a mental bullwhip. And, and, and now uh, I feel... Uh, once again, like, because I'm in a safer, more empowered place, I have an opportunity to be more gentle 
you know, with my ideas, with my art, um, you know, with my eye contact. Um, I feel like I sort of took a page from my mother's book when I was young, and she was a very engaging person and a, a strong feminist and, a, you know, an architect when there were no women architects. And, and my father was very gentle. He was very passive. He was very kind uh, and quiet. And I feel, as I get older, I feel like I am on this sort of trajectory from my mother to my father. And now I like to engage with people um, in a more gentle way. You know, and I think I, I mean, I hope that after empowering my tribe and connecting, you know, and finding my chosen family, that uh, now my new challenge is building more bridges, you know, trying to connect with those outside of that tribe, trying to speak uh, a progressive idea to a conservative person, for instance, and have it be heard. You know, that that's my new dream. Let's hear some more music from my guest, Ani DeFranco. She has a new album called Binary. Um, this is the most recent single, which features Justin Vernon. It's called Zizzing. Air flush with water Skin slick with oil How do you decide when somebody gets to be a guest on an Ani DeFranco album? Um, when they call me back. <laughs> did, did you call? Did you call Justin Vernon? He's he is probably best known for folks who don't immediately recognize his name for his uh, band or pseudonym or something along those lines. Bonnie Iver. Yeah, his handle. Yeah. Brilliant to have a handle. Should have thought of it a long time ago myself. A little separation. Um, yeah, I mean, he was somebody I met during the Hadestown Project, uh, Aeneas Mitchell's wonderful folk opera that she brilliantly constructed and brought Justin into and myself. And um, yeah, so this time out with this new record, uh, my strategy was just don't be alone. You have brilliant, beautiful friends. Call them. And so that's what I started doing as I was, 
you know, making the recordings, I was just dreaming and scheming like, uh, you know, usually on many a record, I would have done uh, what was about to upcome there in the track was a chorus of Justin's voices that he added to the choruses of the songs of that song. Um, and I just I, I said, can you be a string section with your voice? question mark that's my only that's it that's all i'm telling you and normally i would do that with myself you know my own my little bullet mic uh, you know choruses have been on a lot of records but once again this time out i was like maybe i should just make a few calls connect with some of my friends and i'm so happy i did because they all brought their spirit to the record and it's so much better for it We'll have more with Ani DeFranco after a break. Still on the docket, that time Ani jammed with Prince. I mean, can you imagine Prince asking you to, like, just come over? It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from the AT&T original series, Mr. Mercedes, based on Stephen King's best-selling novel. A demented serial killer taunts a retired police detective, and now the ex-cop must bring the killer to justice before he can strike again. Mr. Mercedes premieres August 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on Audience. Watch on DirecTV Channel 239 or stream on DirecTV Now. Go to att.net slash Mercedes for more information. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. This summer, keep up to date on the day's news with Up First. It's the morning news podcast from NPR. In just 10 minutes, Up First gives you a quick morning update on what happened and what you need to start the day. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Ani DeFranco. The singer and songwriter has a new album out now. It's called Binary. I am very interested in the particular friends who have helped you along your road. I know that when I first encountered your music, because um, when I was in high school, my then-girlfriend, now wife, Mm. definitely loved you more than me. (laughs) Um, uh, The thing that struck me was like, huh, she's friends with Prince, huh? (laughs) So how did you become friends with Prince? Prince was so cool. (laughs) I mean, how exactly? How does a little white girl from Buffalo get such vivid, brilliant company? Um, I mean, I guess maybe the connection point. He was struggling, you know, on on his label. Warner Brothers having a hard time with the old major label industry, feeling a bit chewed up and spit out. And he, you know, at that time I was sort of getting on the covers of magazines for Miss Righteous Babe. And he said in the media, our our conversation started in the media, really. He said in some interview, I want to be on Righteous Babe. I believe that was the point where I wrote him a fax or something. I was like, call me. (laughs) (laughs) He just mailed him a contract. Like, let's do this. Yeah, exactly. The contract says you can have whatever you want. You can get out whenever you want. That's what my contracts were like on Righteous Babe. It's nice to have an artist-run label, by the way, people. Um, But um, 
Then, I don't know, I showed up in Minneapolis one summer, and I had the wonderful Maceo Parker on tour with me, and we were doing shows out, and we were playing out in a ballpark in Minneapolis, and up drove this white limo, and there was a tizzy backstage, and everybody was like, honey, honey, come now, come now. And I go over in the window, and there he is, in like, you know electric purple just lying prone on a white shag carpet in the bottom of this limo and it was just amazing he invited me to paisley park the next day to play on his record which was ridiculous and um that next day happened to be the fourth of july and next thing i knew we were up on his the roof of paisley park watching the fireworks and and then we had a jam session, you know, it was Prince and Larry Graham and Maceo Parker <laughs> and me. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, how does that happen? I don't know. I was just really fortunate to have been, you know, some kind of acquaintance to him and to have been in his company over the years. He was a really powerful spirit. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ani DeFranco. I like the idea of you, Prince, Maceo, Maceo Parker, of course, legendary for having played in uh, both Parliament, Funkadelic, and the JBs, and Mm -hmm. Larry Graham, uh, who played in both his band, Graham Central Station, and with Prince, and originally with Sly and the Family Stone. Touring is like a funk package tour (laughs) to, (laughs) you know. Oh, man. Gosh. I'll, I'll sign up. Like I'll the Concord Amphitheater. Well, I'll tell you. Just I'll I'll just I I don't wouldn't usually do this, but it's just it's one of my happiest little moments in my life. When after that night was coming to a close, and I was saying goodbye to Prince, I had showed up with like a four string tenor guitar. Like you couldn't have a more yo- yokel, like a folky yokel axe hanging off of me and I'm in that company and he was you know Prince was just kind of jamming around songs that ended up being you know the musicology tour and he likes to do that kind of just woodshed songs and see what comes up and get ideas for the tour and so we were jamming on that stuff and I had my tenor twangy guitar and I was just you know trying to trying to sit in there you know how whatever way that I could instinctually devise. And as we were parting company, I was like, you know, wow, what the heck? I can't believe I just with my stupid little guitar. And and Prince said to me, that was the funk. That was the funk you played. I was like, oh, sir, thank you, sir. (laughs) I'm glad I pleased you. I got the nod. I got the nod that night from Prince. Well, Ani DeFranco, I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk to me. It was really nice. It was really nice to meet you. Oh, Jesse, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Ani DeFranco's new album is called Binary. Let's take a listen to the title track. Ani DeFranco, Get Binary Now. Buy it through her label, Righteous Babe. She'll be touring throughout the fall, too. In the blue glow of gizmos, look despots in diapers and cyborgs with bullhorns and crackpots 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Aiden Gillen. Aiden's an actor. Maybe you saw him on The Wire on HBO. He played Mayor Tommy Carcetti. He also starred on the original British version of Queer as Folk. Or if you're one of the millions of people watching Game of Thrones right now, you'll know him as Lord Peter Baelish, a.k.a. Littlefinger. Even on a show like Game of Thrones, with its dozens of complex, messy, fascinating characters, Littlefinger stands out. Since the show's debut, Gillen's character has allied himself with maybe half of the cast, only to betray almost all of them. And after seven seasons on TV's most violent show, nobody's killed him yet. When Aiden plays Littlefinger, it's really fun to watch. He's cunning, he's opaque, devious, but also sincere when it counts. And he has a code of a sort. In this scene from the show's third season, he pretty much lays it all out. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Many who try to climb it fail. Never get to try again. The fall breaks them. And some are given a chance to climb, but they refuse. They cling to the realm. Or the gods. Or love. Illusions. Only the ladder is real. The climb is all there is. Aiden Gillen, welcome to Bullseye. Uh, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Who was that? Uh, <laughs> that is a that is really intense. Uh, with the music and without the buildup of the rest of the scene, it really throws you into that. It really freaked me out <laughs> listening to that. I have to say. Like it's it's almost like uh, it's almost like on set you were in a music video and you should have had the little earpiece with the playback of the bum bum ba dum bum ba dum bum. Yeah, we didn't have that. <laughs> I mean, that was it was interesting because uh, we did that as part of a scene and then I think we did it as a voiceover afterwards. Um, I say not voiceover, but like an eighty or looping right. session. And um, I remember quite vividly going in to do it. And really kind of amping it up and hamming it up a little because I thought it could take it. Yeah. Um, but there is a hip-hop version of it out there. I mentioned <laughs> that to you. I feel like that scene is almost a sort of – it's almost a sort of thesis for Littlefinger, your character on Game of Thrones. Like they just – it was as though they had made making the show for a few years and they're like, okay, let's have him – lay it out let's have him say say what he's all about yeah it's funny you know um that speech or a version of that cropped up as a scene in season one that we never shot you know there was a lot of stuff around the time you know in the first year we were working on this show where before you know the dynamic was fully kind of sorted uh we ended up with episodes that were shorter or that we thought were going to be shorter than we needed. So suddenly there's these extra scenes being written and you come in to shoot them. And that was part of a scene that was down to be shot like uh, at the end of the first season, but we never shot it. So it was in my head, and I knew that they, the writers had come up with this thing, which is a kind of a little finger mandate, if you like. And uh, you know, it was in my head, but it was a couple of years later that it came up as part of that scene. It's funny because Littlefinger is a character who almost always has his cards incredibly close to the vest, like a character who betrays very little to yeah. others, 
who's very closed. And so it is it is in this moment when he is talking to another character on the show who's also kind of a grand conspirator. Yeah, it was okay to reveal, you know, to make this statement to him because yeah. he knows what I'm about, you know. It's one of those things, you know, you look for these pins, if you like, to just hang your character on or, you know, to define your character. And uh, when something like that comes along, if you recognize that it's, that that could be such a strong indicator of who this person is, you really make sure, you know, you want to make sure that it's actually something that does get shot and that you really point it up and make it noticeable because it could have been played in any any way, you know. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Aidan Gillen stars on HBO's Game of Thrones. He was also in The Wire and the original Queer as Folk. I want to play a clip from the third episode on the new season of Game of Thrones. So spoilers uh, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, In this scene, you're talking with Sansa Stark, who is now ruling the North and Winterfell in the absence of her brother or half-brother, Jon Snow. Let's take a listen. Command suits you. The Northerners are all facing north, worried about the threat from beyond the wall. So they should be. I know Cersei better than anyone here. If you turn your back on her... You don't know Cersei better than anyone here. I only meant to say... That the woman who murdered my mother, father and brother is dangerous. Thank you for your wise counsel. One of two things will happen. Either the dead will defeat the living, in which case... All our troubles come to an end. Or life will win out. And what then? Don't fight in the north or the south. Fight every battle, everywhere, always. In your mind. Everyone is your enemy. Everyone is your friend. Every possible series of events is happening all at once. Live that way and nothing will surprise you. Everything that happens will be something that you've seen before. I feel like one of the interesting things about Littlefinger as a character is that, you know, the show is about all these people striving, right? Every single person, whether they're already whether they're already royalty or not, they're all striving and pushing. Mm. Um, and Littlefinger's character shares that incredible ambition like this is a guy who is a striver and a pusher but i kind of don't feel like he's a guy who wants to be on top am i right in thinking that yeah you're kind of right i mean he says he does and uh, towards the end of uh the last season i made a declaration that that was what i wanted so that's what he says but you know he's saying that to somebody else to make her think that that's what he wants being in the position of absolute power uh, is not really the ideal place to be. It's too dangerous and not as much fun. And, um, you know, but being close to it or being in control of it, of somebody else who sits there, um, having exercising influence over them while being at a safe remove is probably more um, what he's about. When you were a teenage actor yourself, did you know that not all actors who are good as teenagers become actors who are good as adults? I didn't know much about anything. <laughs> How did you start doing it? Uh, yeah, I fell into that by chance. You know the way always when you ask actors why they became actors, they go, oh, well, you know, uh, girls and parties and or boys and parties and, you know, I just wanted to hang out and have fun. Well, 
that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was lucky enough to uh, live quite close to this youth theater company, which was on the go in Dublin in the in the city. You know, I grew grew up in the middle of practically in town. You know, in um, in Dublin, and uh, there was this building where a mate of mine used to. He was signed up there because his, I think his uh, his mother wanted, was trying to stop him robbing, you know, shoplifting. There was a mate of mine whose pockets were always sewn up and this kind of stuff, you know. And uh, wait, literally? Yeah, his mother had to <laughs> sew his pockets shut, stop him stealing, and uh, out of the shops, you know. Um, so somehow or other, he was channeled into this. Uh, this will sort him out, you know. And uh, some real tough love. I don't know. You know, I've met quite a lot of actors who you know were send pushed that way a, to get them out of a life of crime. Set him to be in Oklahoma. Um, and you know, a lot of actors would say, "Well, you know, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be in jail." But uh, he went in there, and I was like, well, "Where's he gone?" I think I followed him up there once to see what he was doing. How old were you? Uh, Thirteen. And I started hanging out at this place, but you had to be 14 to join, so I wasn't, you know, and you had to audition to join, so I just used to hang out there, and they had a pool table, and I started painting sets. The guy who was the, uh, there was a guy who lived in the building, like caretaker, who was also one of the directors of this joint, and he um, used to have us out, you know, going on these excursions around town, looking for old wood and stuff out of, you know, skips, dumpsters. So we'd go on these excursions. I saw a good door down the, down there. There's a bunch of planks over the other side of town. And you'd have these like teenagers going across town and f- getting all these planks and carrying them across. And then we'd build sets out of them. And you know, so it was, I was into the the carpentry and the paint. And he always had like it was all this paint. And you know, I really liked the smell of paint and glue and petrol and all these kind of things. So there was a lot of that going on there. You know, they talk about the smell of the being attracted by the smell of the grease paint and the roar of the crowd, but in in my case, it was like, you know, silk vinyl emulsion or, you know, um, there's something. Paraffin. There's something so exciting about the idea when you're that age that you could just make a really big thing. Like that's one exciting thing like about a, building sets. Yeah, yeah like yeah, yeah. physically, like there's nothing else you get. Even if you get to make stuff, mm. you don't get to make a giant thing. A giant thing that people then inhabit and yeah. pretending to be other people and it's this other world, you know. So I was quite seduced by that you know and i started playing small parts but you know i mean really small parts uh you know i think you know after a couple of years they gave me a line you know um but this was my life you know i hung out in this place all the time uh when i wasn't at school there was you know everyone went there on the saturday that's when you're supposed to go there but i was there like every day because it was just down the street and you know um i didn't really my friends from school i didn't really let them know i was doing this thing you know because it was Not that I was embarrassed. It was just another uh, different, separate world, you know? We've got more from my interview with Aidan Gillen still coming. He's worked on stage, too, under the legendary playwright David Mamet. After a quick break, he reveals Mamet's favorite way to communicate. Is it email? Is it walkie-talkie? Stay tuned for David Mamet Insights. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Helix, where one test can provide a lifetime of personal insights from nutrition and fitness to family planning and entertainment. At Helix.com, discover a marketplace of DNA-powered products and find out what your DNA can tell you. Helix, crack your code. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Aidan Gillen. He plays Lord Peter Baelish on HBO's Game of Thrones. Its seventh season just kicked off. 
I want to play a scene from a British television show that you were in, Queer's Folk, which later was made into an American show, uh, remade for Showtime, I think, here in the United States. Um, but this is this is the original show. It's about uh, three gay men who are uh, living in Manchester in England. And this scene, which is one of the most famous from the series, you're already smiling because you know exactly. I, don't, I don't know what it's going to okay. be. You you have a very conspiratorial smile, Aiden. I don't know if you know that. Thank you. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? You're welcome. Um, and uh, in, in this scene, your character, whose name is Stuart, uh, is standing in the living room with his whole family arrayed before him, including little kids. Um, and he's about to come out. Stuart, come give me a hand with these shows, will you? I can't. Of course you can. I just need a hand. Come on. We don't do hammers. And nails or saws. We do joints and screws, but that's different. Who does? Queers. Well, I go and get some sandwiches. This kitchen really needs sorting out. Because I'm queer. I'm gay. I'm homosexual. I'm a puff. I'm a puffter. I'm a punce. I'm a bum boy, baddie boy, backside artist, bugger. I'm bent. I am that arse bandit. I lift those shirts. Hey, you left out a lot of that scene. Yeah, it goes on. It's pretty it gets raw. better than that. Come on. <laughs> Why stop there? I mean, one of the things about that is that it's just this thing that goes on and on, and he describes all the different things he likes to do, you know. I mean, that's a really good piece of writing. And you, you mentioned about the little kids being there, but the point of it is one of the kids is blackmailing him. You know, my nephew is blackmailing me, that he's going to, like, tell my parents, you know, what, about what my life is. So he's, in a way, he's forced to come out. But yeah, given the way that that character operates, he comes out in style, you know. Right beforehand, that kid is kind of pushing it. Yeah. Uh, kind of trying to suggest that he's trying to suggest, like, watch out because I know and yeah, I, yeah. I could say. Yeah, yeah. It must have been a joy to do that scene. I mean, what a great opportunity. It was. And it was one of those ones. I mean, I can I can recognize good writing, you know, uh, you know, a lot of us can. But, you know, um, I really do. I I know there's no point in doing something unless it's really well written, you know. Um, And in that case of that scene, I thought, well, all I've got to do here is just stand against the wall and just say these words, you know, and not make too much of a you know, not really get into histrionics. You know, just stand flat against the wall and just say this stuff because it's all in the words, you know. And I did enjoy that scene and I enjoyed playing that role. And at the time, we weren't really sure how this is going to go down. Am I going to get beaten up in the street? Am I going to get punched in the face? I just wasn't sure what level of uh, homophobic reaction I was going to endure. But as it turned out, it was pretty much none. And that series was uh, a big success, and it was it was groundbreaking. But you know, it was so well written that it was about it was about these guys. Yeah, it was about these primarily these three gay men. One of whom was fifteen, so he wasn't a man; he was a boy. And their families and the worlds around them. But it was so uh, panoramic, you know. And it was about the city of Manchester, and you know, well. What these guys were up to was a big part of it. It wasn't, you know, I don't think uh, sexuality defines is the ultimate definition of, you know, who you know who a person is. Um, uh, 
the writer, Russell, was just writing about his world, you know. And, you know, but his world is also Doctor Who. So he went on and then, you know, reinvigorated the whole Doctor, Doctor Who franchise after that. As a result of his uh, passion for Doctor Who, I got to drive the actual canine around my apartment in Manchester in a party <laughs> scene, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In the studio with me, the actor Aidan Gillen. He's been in The Dark Knight Rises, TV shows like Game of Thrones and The Wire, and more. I have to say that as as much as I love uh, Game of Thrones, the show that you're best known for right now, and as much as I love your character Littlefinger on Game of Thrones, there's a part of me that, honestly, as I've talked to you, has felt like, why is Mayor Carsetti from The Wire doing this weird accent? Oh, yeah. Um, you played this character, Mayor Carsetti, on maybe the maybe the best television show ever. And you got it because someone, am I correct in, in having heard that you were in a pinter play on Broadway? Yeah. With Patrick Stewart and... Um, Kyle McLaughlin. Kyle McLaughlin. And someone saw you in the play and thought, this Irish guy in this pinter play is suitable for my gritty urban drama set on the streets of Baltimore? Yeah, I mean, Carcetti, the character, right? Uh, The character I was playing in that painter play was an English, a British character, so I don't know that they necessarily knew I was Irish, you know? Um, Although I had, the week before, done a profile in in the New York Times, which explicitly, you know, did say that I was Irish. Um, But, you know, if you went to see the play, you wouldn't necessarily know that, you know, because I was playing this... uh, Cockney guy in a place, you know, play that was written in 1958 and set not long after that, you know. Uh, so you were doing sort of a Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins I wasn't. Voice. I wasn't doing Dick Van Dyke. I was doing, I based my look on a photography book called The Teds, which was a book that somebody had uh, catalogued Teddy Boys and Teddy Boy culture in Britain in uh, the 50s kind of onwards. Edwardian yeah, revival Edwardian rock and culture, yeah. 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 Um, so I got the look from that, and I got the voice from a documentary uh, called "We Are the Lambeth Boys," which is was part of the free cinema movement. Uh, the directors like Carol Rice, who you know, went on to direct a lot of uh, great features. Um, anyway, blah blah blah. Uh, Bob Colesbury, who was um, a producer on The Wire and a quite active one, he also acted in The Wire. But you know, he was not just a, a money man or anything. You know, he was involved in a lot of um, artistic decisions, like bringing cinematographers in or actors or editorial decisions. Um, he worked with Martin Scorsese and and um, Alan Parker. You know, he, you know, he, he was uh, a really good guy. He saw the, the show and called me to a, a meeting down in New York, and we went and had breakfast. And he told us about this character they were thinking of bringing in this politician, and uh, you know, we, they weren't really sure how it would go or how, how long he would stay in the show. But you know, they were going to use this strand to reflect what was going on politically in the city of Baltimore and in the state of Maryland, but primarily in the city and, you know, the local political scene. You know, uh, there is, I heard talk from people that I know from uh, Maryland that uh, your character was loosely based on a mayor of, um, a a, a mayor of Baltimore. It reminded me, I, in high school, worked in the mayor's office in San Francisco under when uh, Willie Brown was the mayor. It didn't remind me of Willie Brown, but uh, Gavin Newsom, who's now the uh, lieutenant governor of California, reminded me a bit of it in that it is this 
that character is this combination of feels like this character, this combination of sincere idealism and the scheming that is required of a politician, that it is this odd mix of those things that is in many ways what it is to be, especially at the city level and especially at, at, uh, you know, a politically progressive politician, that there is this kind of scheming and horse trading and weird shadiness that mixes with this grand uh, rainbow coalition grandness. And that must have been an, an exciting thing to play. Yeah, I mean, I, I do believe that character did change somewhat. I don't believe he did start off super idealistic. I think there was a shader that came in, you know, halfway through. And as it went on, um, there was a level of some kind of dissatisfaction or cynicism crept in when he realized, you know, the higher he got, the less he could actually do. Or, you know, your hands are tied to a degree. And, yeah, you're right, it does take a certain type of person um, to be a politician and at city level but this guy wanted to go further um, it, I remember having an actual chill when I talked to David Simon about this first on the phone and he said uh, well look you know by the way of course there was a lot of talk that this was based on Martin O'Malley it's not based exclusively on Martin O'Malley of course you know Martin O'Malley is one of one of the people who this was based on and you you know it's it's plain to see that you right. know um, but it's actually actually an amalgamation of different uh, characters that it's based on, and then it's also part fiction, you know. Do you do things differently on stage and on screen? I mean, obviously on stage you have to talk loud enough the audience can hear you. David Mamet will tell you that. I've done a few Mamet plays, and the last one I, I did, he sent me a fax. He uses a fax. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Good he work, referred David to me Mamet. as his old friend. I was <laughs> tickled by that. Apparently, Mamet has uh, issued this uh, this statement that if uh, he's going to fine people twenty five grand if they um, have any kind of post show discussion after his shows. <laughs> have you heard about this? I did hear about that. I thought that was some really good David Mamet trolling. Yeah, I don't agree with everything. You know, I've, I love Mamet's work. Like yeah. in one year, I did like a number of years ago, I did both American Buffalo and Glen, Glen Gary Glen Ross on stage, and like so, I spent like you know eight months of that year in the world of Mamet. You know, and I, and I love his writing. I don't agree with everything he has to say about acting, and you know how it should really be you know stripped of emotion. I don't really. Uh, agree with that. Yeah, I've, um, I've but, talked but, a lot about it on this show about his uh, book about acting, which I think is called Truth and Lies. Yeah, uh, which is both the best book about acting I've ever read, and I, I'm not sure I agree with 20 percent of it. Yeah, I but mean, it is a hoot. And it's all interesting stuff, and I've written, I've read, you know, all the books he's he's written about acting and about filmmaking yeah. and all the rest of it. And there is some great stuff in there. It was know? a lot of fun, one way or the other. Um, but, you know, the first few shows I did, I was mumbling into my hand. You know, I was very shy. My hair was long. It was kind of down over my face. I was hiding behind my coat, behind my hand, you know. So it is different. Yeah, it's a different It's a different discipline, you know. Um, I do like to do them both. I've been back on stage recently, which was, you know, the first time in seven or eight years. It's nice to escape from one to the other. You know, I've always had this thing where when I'm finished a role or whatever that I like to say, okay, I'm going to try and forget about that forever and I'm going to go off to this, maybe to, the, to another country and try and get a, a different type of gig, which is, you know, how I ended up um, 
spent a, a good bit of time here actually in uh, 99 I think it was like after we did that show Queer as Folk and just as it was coming out I just thought I've got to get out of here so I uh, went came to California and did this small um, indie psychological thriller called Buddy Boy out in a warehouse in Burbank um, but they're, they're different types of things and you just kind of try and run from one to the other and hope that when you get back to wherever you you know the place you left a year ago that they'll have forgotten who you are and that you can they'll they'll uh, give you another kind of another kind of role I mean you know and then when you get to it when you get to a stage that people know who you are it's a problem Aiden Gillen thank you so much for talking to me on Bullseye it was really great to get to meet you yeah same thanks Aiden Gillen he's on Game of Thrones on HBO we're a little under halfway through season 7 right now every week we like to wrap things up on Bullseye with a recommendation from me it's the outshot Randy Newman grew up in show business. His uncle was a film composer, actually one of the greatest film composers ever. Randy started writing songs for money when he was still a teenager, before he even got out of high school. But Randy Newman also wears show business uncomfortably, like an itchy jacket. He knows it's phony. And he knows that as glorious as it is, showbiz is a losing game. The performer never gets what he really wants out of performing. We want to be loved. It doesn't work that way. Performance, the acclaim, the applause, the laughter, it's all a simulacrum of being loved. It's transitory, it's ephemeral, it's transactional, it's artificial, it's a stand-in for the real thing. That story, the story of the gap between applause and actual love is at the heart of one of Randy Newman's first great songs. Randy Newman wrote Simon Smith and His Amazing Dancing Bear in 1967. A gorgeous guy named Alan Price sang it. It was a hit in the UK. Price ended up playing in The Animals with Eric Burden, but when he's plunking on the piano, you can hear a bit of that English music hall sound. Hard-working, old-time show business. Seeing at the nicest places where well-fed faces all stop to stare. Making the grandest entrances, Simon Smith and his dancing bear. They love us, won't they? They feed us. It's fun and silly, kind of light on its feet. It's the kind of song the Muppets might sing. In fact, the Muppets did sing it. Outrageous, alarming. Courageous, charming, oh, who would think a boy and bear could be well accepted everywhere? It's just amazing how fair people can be. But by the time Newman cut Simon Smith himself, it was the early 70s, and the charm of the song had curdled a bit. I guess largely because of Newman's singing. No one can sell these songs like he can. It only takes a little tiny turn from genial to rueful to get at the song's real core. I may go out tomorrow if I can borrow a coat to wear Oh, I step out in style with my sincere smile and my dancing bear outrageous alarming courageous charming Oh, who would think a boy and bear to be well except everywhere 
just amazing how fair people can be. Newman's characters are almost always wrong, coming at the world sidewise, a little bit tragic or a little bit foolish. The theme in his songs tend to be revealed through irony. Simon Smith brags about his standing, accepted, loved, secure. But listen carefully, and you'll hear that he's fooling himself. He might even know it. I mean, this happy song, this jolly song, it opens with desperation. I may go out tomorrow if I can borrow a coat to wear. You can hear the thirst there, the poverty and fear. The whole character is built on that. And then there's that pair of questions that the whole thing turns on. They'll love us, won't they? They feed us, don't they? Why is he asking? Why isn't he telling us? I mean, certainly we can say that to be fed, to to earn a living is not to be loved. But I don't think you even have to burrow that deep because they're questions, not statements. It's not they love us, they feed us. The narrator tries to assert his comfort and security, but even the consummate showman can't sell that love as fact. It comes out with a question mark at the end. In his dancing bell, they'll love us, won't they? They feed us, don't they? Oh, who would think a boy in bed could be well except everywhere? It's just amazing how fair people can be. There isn't a performer alive who doesn't want to be loved, who doesn't long for acceptance. Who doesn't want to think that laughter or applause is proof that they're sitting comfortable in the world? But with one music hall melody and 133 words, Randy Newman lays that fear bare. That's my outshot. Who needs money when you're funny? Big attraction everywhere will be Simon Smith and his dancing bear. Simon Smith and the amazing dancing bear. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org, world headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Los Angeles apparently just issued the 2028 Summer Olympics, so we'll look forward to MacArthur Park Lake hosting the new event, Gross Swimming. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. This is Kara's last week. Our deep and sincere thanks for all of her contributions to this show and all of our shows. She'll continue as the producer of our podcast, One Bad Mother, so uh, we'll see her around the office. But thank you so much for all your hard work on Bullseye, Kara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is by The Go Team. They provided it to us along with their label, Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or check out our YouTube page. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We're sharing interviews, giving you sneak previews to upcoming Bullseye guests. We're even sharing funny, dumb stuff from the internet. Mostly Kevin does that. That's Kevin's fault. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. 
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.